Hey listeners, we discuss details regarding violence against natives. This is a trigger warning for those that may need extra care while listening. Patchway, welcome to this episode of War Cry Podcast. We are an all-Native-run podcast discussing data, events, stories, issues, and historical connections about Northwest missing and murdered Natives. My name is Emily Washings, and the co-hosts are Patsy Whitefoot, Robin Pibishi, and Lucy Smartlout. Today we have guest Pa Tuthla, also known as George Lee Jr., this month marks the anniversary of the Strong family having identification of their loved one, Rosenda Strong. They held a memorial type event for their loved one uh, this past Sunday. They actually have not had her remains returned yet, so they continue to be in wait status, both in terms of justice and unanswered questions, as well as to continue this process of our traditional ceremonies to bury our loved ones. Um, so we are thinking of the Strong family in this time. Sissy and Chris, we are thinking of you in this difficult time. Announcements. War Cry podcast is now available on iTunes. And I just heard from my editor and my case study War Cry will be published this month. And we'll let you know once that link is up. Today we have guest George Lee Jr. Pa Tuthla. He is retired from as an Army Staff Surgeon in 2017. He also served in the Air Force from 2000 to 2006. He grew up in White Swan, Washington, which is in South Central Washington State, on the Yakima Reservation where he currently resides. We are also located, uh, myself and my co-hosts, on the Yakima Reservation today. On Saturday, July 12, 2003, Seattle PD had received calls of multiple fireworks being set off in the area of 4th Avenue around Yesler Way overpass. The homeless of Seattle often sleep in that area. Later that morning, around 3.30 a.m., police received reports of shots being fired in the same area. Sandra Lee Smiskin and Emil were found shot under the overpass as they were sleeping near the King County Courthouse. Sandra was shot in the abdomen, and she later died. Crime Stoppers posters offered a $1,000 reward for information that was on the walls and buildings throughout the city. In the Real Change newspaper, October publication also asked for information on the murder of Sandra. Real Change wrote that Sandra was known and loved within the community. The newspaper also listed other Seattle homeless who were killed by various means, stating that they know that some do not, some that they do not know, and some whose identity are also unknown. Upon reading the various accounts and descriptions across multiple newspapers and reports, the suspect is described as a dark-complexioned man said to be in his 20s to 40s. He was said to be standing on the overpass as he shot down to the street and calmly walked away. Another account said the man uh, shot the two by accident, nervously and clumsily handling his gun, trying to shoot in the general direction of where the fireworks were being set off. A silver pickup truck was listed on the Crime Stoppers poster uh, as a possible connection to the crime as it left the area immediately after shots were fired. A witness uh, that did talk to the press informed the police, but the name of the shooter is still unknown the reason why remains unknown. He calmly walked away after he shot, which also means it is unknown if Sandra or the male with her was the intended target. Various theories arrives that uh, she was caught in the crossfire of a dispute over money or fireworks or both. Uh, Sandra Lee Smiskin was 45 years old at the time. 
She is an enrolled member of the Yakima Nation born on the reservation in Toppenish, Washington. She went to East Valley High School in Moxie, Washington. She had three children, two daughters and a son, uh, all of whom it is mentioned uh, that she unfortunately lost custody of. Catching rides with friends, she often went back and forth between the Yakima Reservation and the Seattle area and calling Seattle her second home. Uh, when she came back to the reservation, she visited family, took jobs, uh, attended events like powwows. She would sometimes confide in family about her problems uh, with alcoholism and drugs, which they often encouraged her to quit. She was taken to a longhouse and buried the traditional washout way by her family. In 2018, the Seattle Indian Health Board's Urban Area Indian Health Institute, based in Seattle, Washington, published a study on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. The report identified 506 missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in 71 urban cities. Sandra was included in this report. Indigenous women from across the country, including the Yakima Nation, live in urban settings off reservations while going to school or pursuing careers. Uh, said Abigail Akahawk, who's Pawnee, the UIHI uh, director, in a 2018 article in the Yakima Herald Republic about the study. Uh, then in 2019, UIHI released MMIWG, We Demand More, a research study addressing uh, the, the lacking reports Washington State Patrol released about MMIWG crisis. Uh, the number of missing and murdered Yakimas, women, girls, and men, and LGBTQ, two-spirit on the 1.3 million acre reservation is unknown. But investigators found as many as 32 cases dating back to the 1980s. We do have at least 40 cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women since 1855 at the Yakima Nation. And today's, today's guest really brings together this story. As the son of a missing uh, or a murdered Yakima woman, um, one that I found out about for the first time in 2018 report that Robin had mentioned by uh, Urban Indian uh, Health Institute. And, you know, I welcome him today to bring, uh, to share his story, his mother's story and their experience. George, please tell us a little bit about who Sandra was and about your work to help bring justice for her and others in our uh, community and tribe. Yes. Um... I'd like to say, firstly, thank you very much for the opportunity to be able to uh, be on the show, to be able to share my mother's story. Um, so my mother, been able to hear, you know, stories from my uncle recently about who my mother was. My uncle in the same situation as my mother, being um, that he doesn't really have a home. He stays at with me at my residence. Prior to that, he was staying on the streets of Seattle as well. So to, t to put a little bit more understanding to this, my uncle and my mother were both uh, picked up on the streets of Wapato, actually, back when they were both four and three years old. And they also had another sister that was picked up with them. She was taken because she, was, she wasn't being taken care of as well. There was a a disease that was standing in the way, and that disease was known as alcohol. You know, alcohol stood in the way of my mother being able to be taken care of by her mother and father. So she was taken by the state so and grown and grew up in the system. Grew up with a family in East Valley and didn't didn't come back home until she was 18 years old. In that home, in East Valley, she grew up with, again, her sister and my uncle is the one that stays with me now. You know, they, they had their little, their patterns. It was, a, it was a foster system, foster care home. So, you know, they had their, their ways of, of teaching, you know, little Indian children to understand what it is that they desired them to understand rather than understanding the culture, understanding our foundation of who we are as a people. And so that was one, one of the biggest things that I was able to understand in my mother's death is that she, she didn't have that in her life. The foundation that each of us, you know, need as indigenous people. And so I mean, when my mother returned back to, uh, 
the reservation, she um, moved back in with my grandmother and grandfather, her mom and dad. In that same time, you know, learning, trying to understand who someone is again, all over again from the very beginning is a risk. We all feel that it, it is a risk and it's a dangerous risk, especially for someone growing up in the system. And I don't think that was appreciated as much for my mother, you know, when she was growing up, that, that risk that she, that, that had to be understood. And so that was a problem, you know, my mother had a, had a couple daughters, my sisters, and my, my grandfather, you know, he stood in the way of that opportunity that, that was before my mother, you know, of learning the foundation, understanding our ways and everything. My, my grandfather stood in the way of that through the molestation of my sisters. And so I know that with my mother, you know, trying to create a established, trying to, trying to create a, a foundation of who she can really trust in this world was already tarnished by having to grow up in the system and then having to be able to come back home to, you know, a, um, a father who was willing to do this to her daughters or daughter. Shortly after that, you know, I was taken from, from my mom. It, it caused my mother to spiral out of control, you know. Through learning all of this through with my with my uncle, like I said, who stays with me, you know, I was able to understand who my mother was, understand what it was that was standing in her way, understanding why it was so hard for her to get out of her own way and being able to take the chance of sobriety, you know, something, you know, that, that can be extremely difficult or it can be somewhat easy depending on the support or whether that's your own inner strength or from your loved ones being able to support you completely. Um, but the foundation part is the part that stuck out the most to me when it came to my mother and how she grew up. You know, each of us who grew up culturally in our ways, you know, you grow up in the longhouse, you grow up in the sweat house, you grow up in the mountains, you grow up on the river, you know, we're, we're able to establish a foundation. And I think that that's where the biggest fault lies when it comes to, you know, people that do end up in these, in these sort of situations where, you know, you don't, you don't care that homelessness is, is, is a, uh, can become a more than just a possibility can become a reality and a comfortable reality because that foundation is missing. This was a little bit that I was able to understand more of my mother and who she was, you know, the past, I guess you can say a couple of years since, since I did, since I have moved back home. Um, I was wondering if you could, there's two things and memories that stick out to me that you've shared previously. One is the birth of your daughter and all the names of the nurses that came. And the second is the memory with your mother at Treaty Day. Um, Treaty Day, you know, is June 9th. Since 1855, we've commemorated that date and George shared something. So I wonder if you can share those two memories. Well, the first one is just kind of a really interesting uh, thing that happened, right? With the birth of your daughter, your mother was obviously passed for a number of years at this point, And you remarked that the nurses that came in and helped, there was some resemblance to your mother. And I wonder if you can share about that. Yeah, of course. Um, I believe it's a really, you know, extremely beautiful story. So my daughter, Liliana Elaine, we were stationed in North Carolina at the time. And um, August 25th, 2016, 15, you know, my, my wife went into labor with our with our little girl and so you know she woke me up and you know the one thing that points out to me you know my wife folks tells me all the time you know you were extremely calm you were calm you were calm you didn't you didn't freak out or anything 
And so that that's something that, you know, I got really excited about. But we drove to the hospital, and um, I got to be the one to catch my daughter as she came out. You know, I delivered my daughter. It, you know, it makes me really happy that I was the one to, you know, catch her and be able to hand her to my wife as she as she was born. When she was born, we had a nurse, and uh, that nurse's name was Sandra. Just happened to be the name of my mother. And um, shortly after she was born, that nurse left, and uh, a nurse, a new nurse, came in. That new nurse that came in happened to be named Sandra. <laughs> and so, you know, it it made me. You know, really happy to that. You know, mom was there during during the birth of my daughter, and so you know we had a uh, another nurse come in that happened to bring in a uh, knitted hat and knitted gloves and everything that that were donated, and uh, her name happened to be Sandra. <laughs> so we had three nurses that came in all named Sandra, they know that, that were there for the birth of my daughter. And so that was one of uh, the things that, you know, that make me really happy. And when, especially when it comes to talking about my little girl being born and pulling her into the world, knowing that Sandra was there you know, with us so strongly. And, uh, in such a positive way, too. You know that. That I think that was a. I think what may have affected it most is that it was in an extremely positive way that she happened to be there. And so, you know, that was something that made me really happy. Uh, <laughs> the other thing that you had mentioned before was a. Uh, Treaty Day back in 2000. Um, I uh, I announced that I was getting ready to join the military. I was going ready to join the Air Force. Um, it had always been a purpose, you know, a goal of mine to join the military. You know, that purpose was to uh, understand, I guess you can say, understand combat understand what it is that our warriors, you know, spoke about. You know, I grew up in a powwow circle and uh, we always had this thing during an eagle feather pickup ceremony, you know, and an eagle feather falls to the ground. A veteran talks about how it represents, you know, a fallen soldier, a fallen comrade, and they tell their story. With me, that said that, you know, you have to understand our ways much, much more. You know, I'm not just, you know, on the drum line, not just in the powwow circle, not just in the mountains, not just on the river, but there's a sacrifice that our warriors used to make a long time ago. And, you know, that was the purpose of me wanting to join the military was to understand more in depth that sacrifice that our warriors used to make. And so in June 2000, I let my mother know that, you know, hey mom, I'm going to join the military. I let her know at home in the house that I reside in now. And, um, you know, she was really happy. Also at the time, same time, she was extremely scared. You know, I never seen my mom, my mother, you know, express her emotions really to the extent that, you know, to see her scared, you know, that was, that was a, that was new to me. You know, my mother, we got scared because I said, hey, my mom, I'm on the Air Force now. And uh, you can, you know, I could see the scare, the scare on her face. But then she she went to the back room real quick and she brought this little uh, stuffed uh, bunny out. And she held it close to her face, you know, said, thumper, you know, like Bambi. And uh, she gave me the, the bunny and said, here, take, take thumper with you. Take thumper with you when you go. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I obviously couldn't take something with me. I was going to the Air Force, and had I showed up with a, a stuffed 
funny at boot camp. I don't think that would have gone too well. But, uh, you know, that was one of the, you know, the other, one of the other stories that I remember so fondly about telling her, hey, mom, I'm going to join the military. You know, I got to see fear in my mother's eyes, you know, just a little bit. And, uh, you know, that was followed closely by excitement and, you know, a willingness to uh, try to do something better from that point. And um, shortly after I joined, you know, I went to, got stationed in England and I received a letter from my mom. And that letter, she told me how badly she wanted to do good. How badly, you know, you know, when we get to that point in sobriety that, or that point that we want to be able to do so good for what it is that we believe in, you know, and she tried to transpire that to me in writing as I was in England, I was hopeful. I was really, really, really hopeful. I really, really, really wanted my mom to do good. But also at the same time, you know, I was stationed in England and I was trying to make sure that I, you know, do good as well, progress. I didn't take the time to write her back. You know, that, that lives with me. And how that might have affected my mother also lives with me, you know, how there's a lot of a lot of people when they start their recovery, they will base it just off of the response of maybe just one person. And that and that is an unfortunate gamble when it comes to I notice when it comes to trying to trying to better yourself. You know, we give ourselves the excuse to stand in our own way. And I questioned whether or not, you know, I was that that one person that said that was, you know, the one that she based her success on or failures off of. Um, because as as it was stated, you know, she would explain to people who 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 was that how how much she wanted to quit alcohol or how much she wanted to quit drugs, but it never really went beyond that. And you know, that was the very first time I ever heard her or written, seen her in writing, state that she wanted to quit. That was that's one of the things that one of the one of the main things that helped me you know, push my influence towards, uh, you know, we talked about before, my We Fear Not page. When I talk about We Fear Not, the page that I created, you know, my goal is to help us to get us to get out of our own way. If I were to ask my mother the question, you know, what was one thing that you really wanted to teach me before you passed? You know, a motherly feeling, motherly thought, more than likely would be something about our ways, our way of life, how to use them to the recovery, how to not be scared. And so having this in the back of my mind, that will help influence my recovery and understanding that we need to, we need to, we do need to get out of our own way. We do need to, you know, help each other, help influence each other because had I, because Maybe, you know, maybe if I did write back, maybe if I did write back right away and, you know, my mother would have said thank you. And that was all she would have needed. This is one of the, the driving things that, driving factors that influences we fear not is to get out of our own way when it comes to recovery, uh, when it comes to assisting others, influence. Don't just, you know, say, okay, well, you're probably just going to end up down there again as we normally do as family members. I really think it's important for people to hear kind of this raw aspects of, of the processing and of your story. You know, you and I have sat and had conversations um, with people and in groups. And there's been some things that have really surprised me that I had had to really reflect on and think about. Um, you know, when we talked about that 2018 report in which your mother's name appears, um, you talked about the first time that you had that was the first time that I had seen um, her name associated in, in knowing that she was a part of this MMIW 
uh, movement and people bringing awareness. Um, and it's the dynamic here that, you know, we don't know who our Yakima women are that have all been killed in these different places. And I had made a commitment early on to not leave them um, alone, even if it was in the press. So if I can give a very general or high level quote, I did that in a Taco Bell parking lot. I read the report and I gave a high level. And the reason I'm going to share this process is because I, sh I assumed that the family was told. And the first time I found out that the family wasn't told, um, we were sitting together and you were being interviewed by a different press outlet. And you had talked about the first time that you'd seen that on the phone and you had pulled it up. And, you know, you were new to your sobriety. You were new to, new to that. So that's a very, you know, it's a very tender thing at that moment. And you threw your phone across the room. And I swear when you said that, I just thought, oh my gosh, I did something wrong. I, I, I wasn't thinking about all the different pieces that I needed to piece into this. But you later talked mm -hmm. about that pro as an aspect of just the process, the aspect of people not even knowing. Um, you would almost even reaffirm me that you're like, there's people I grew up with that didn't even know this. Yeah. And so I just, I really appreciate you sharing this process. I really appreciate you narrating out these different points because I, I think that it's helpful for other families that are out there. And I, I just want to turn to my co-host really quickly to just see if you have additional thoughts to offer for George or his uh, mother. Having worked in uh, public education uh, with our native children uh, in particular, I just want to say I appreciate George sharing about the fact that his mother grew up in a a foster care situation because similar circumstances with me personally, not in the foster care, but similar kinds of experiences that I personally had. But also in working with uh, young people in our school systems, we have a number of our children that are in the foster care system right now in the state. And while we have Indian child welfare and the various kinds of support systems, I think that there's a deeper need that children have that are in foster care and the families as well that are you know, caring for these children and of course immediate families I know is, is important. And I also think about the number of children that we have in special education services too. Sometimes these children aren't always you know, provided the kind of support systems that they need, particularly in foster care and special education. And uh, I share that because I've seen that firsthand and my heart really goes out to the children that I worked with who were in foster care because when you're in school systems in those kinds of settings, you don't know who's in foster care because of confidentiality. You're not to know. Even someone like myself who was working in a school system, I couldn't know. The only way I found out was whether I gave a, a student a ride home after school or I talked with them personally. Then children began to divulge that they were in foster care. It's, it's sad uh, to think about it. Um, you know, I just think about a case that's very dear to my heart is having foster children that were in two different, separate foster homes. They weren't even together or, you know, some of the circumstances that George talked about, about family dynamics and some of the, you know, the abuse and family members uh, received, you know, from children and from their parents or their guardians. And so... I appreciate you being so open and sharing that, George. It just brought back that back to my mind as well. And then with regard to being homeless, um, again, I've been personally involved with that with my own family members, my own nephew, and trying to support my sister uh, with her son being out in the streets in Seattle. And having walked those streets of Seattle looking for him when he said he wanted to come home, I would go every time he said he wanted to come home. And I have a nephew who's also living on the streets and and I would take him with me to help me to walk those streets, to go to the missions, to look for him and and to just, you know, 
figure out where he might be, where the native people were staying in Seattle and going to those locations by, by going to those homes or those mission sites, you begin to learn where the native people hang out. And I would find them in the park and I would ask him about my nephew. He has now uh, deceased. He continued when he uh, lived in Seattle, he came back home and then he continued to stay on the streets, both here in Yakima and the Toppenish area as well. And so this is such a, a, to me, it's such a tragedy for our families to, you know, continue to have to address these issues. And it's still a part of our life, though. It's still a part of who I am. I'm currently writing for uh, a paper for graduates. And we have to own these kinds of issues ourselves uh, because it is a part of who we are. And even as old as I am, it's still a part of my life today, which is what I'm saying in this, this document that I'm writing. It's still a part of my life. And it's, not, it's something I'm not, not going to ever forget. It's who I am every day. So again, I just want to say thank you. I think people don't often understand the, the extent of you know, some of these issues within our community and with our families, but it does impact our daily lives. So thank you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. The way that, you know, we're talking about um, the uh, treaty, right, the treaty 1855. We wanted to mention before about when our treaty was signed, right, in June 9th, 1855, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. We always say that it was created then uh, because of the miners and everything that came over. After the, after the signing of the treaty, um, we had a ratification period. Ratification didn't happen until uh, March, was it 19, 1857, 1858? A couple years later. It wasn't until then that, say that again? Uh, 1859. 1859, yeah. So almost four years until ratification was supposed to, until, until ratification happened. So that entire period, there was not supposed to be any white settlers coming onto the reservation. There wasn't supposed to be um, anyone. You know, our reservation was supposed to be free of miners, free of cattlemen, free of the settlers. But we were, our woman kept getting raped and murdered. This is when, to, to me, this is the understanding of when missing and murdered indigenous women and girls was created. When we talk about issues like my mother being part of the statistic, this is how far back I look back in, in the numbers. When the miners and everybody were taking the women and raping them, we had our warriors that wanted to stand up for our people and say, leave our, leave our women alone, leave our children alone. With that, there was the, the, um, the government ignoring us, you know, Agent Bolin didn't want to listen to the Yakimas the way that, with the care, with the, uh, with the um, empathy that we, we were hoping for. We were put on the back burners, as, as you know, we can say, our people, our indigenous women and girls weren't cared for. And so the Yakima warriors obviously took matters into their own hands. If we're not going to be protected by the U.S. government, we'll protect our own. So the warriors ended up killing the miners. With that, Agent Boland decided to finally listen. He came over from the Dalles, was on his way, and in turn was killed by a couple warriors in the pass. I'd say it is pass. One of those warriors was my great-great-grandfather, Toppenish Lee. That created the Yakima Wars, right? This is where the whole Yakima War decides to say, to kick in. An agent of theirs was killed by Yakima warriors. Now we can go to war against the Yakima. Not, let's listen to what the Yakima have to say and consider this mis missing and murdered indigenous women and girls issue. Let's not listening to what they have to say about the miners who are coming in here, raping and pillaging the people. Let's start the wars over a killed agent. 
we had the uh, Battle of Toppenus Creek. We had the battle over there just uh, south of Toppenus. And then we had the Battle of Union Gap. The Battle of Union Gap happened. Chief Kamaikin tried to talk with the, with the soldiers again. Say, listen, this is what everything's about. This is about the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. This is not about me wanting to go, us to wanting to go to war with you. This is about the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. Not necessarily MMIWs, you know, per se, but this is about our women being raped. This is about our people. That message was also interpreted by the fathers of uh, the St. Joseph Marquette missionary that happened to be over here at Union Gap, which is why Kamaik was here in this area. So the Battle of Union Gap happened, and our Yakima people fled to the top of Union Gap. Fled to the top and took a Tanum Ridge from the eastern side all the way to the western side. And fled that way with a letter left behind by the fathers of St. Joseph Marquette saying, please listen to us. Please listen to us when this is all I'm trying to say. We are trying to protect our people. That is all. And so, you know, that, that battle that happens in Union Gap is one that I do think about all the time because I run a town on Ridge all the time how our people fled up that hill, you know. And I often think about our voices being silenced as indigenous, not just as, you know, my mother's voice or my cousin Olivia's voice. I worry for the voices of that of my daughters, you know, our, our future that still has to come, you know. If we're going to be silenced this much and in this fashion, that that was another driving factor that came into We Fear Not. The We Fear Not page can be found on Facebook, correct? Yes. All right. One of the things that I wanted to talk about is, you know, when I was studying the Yakima War, you were in the military, in the army, and you had contacted me and said, you're studying this war and talking about what the military did where is my place? You know, I'm over here. Mm -hmm. I'm serving. And um, I really had thought, I don't, I have no idea. I was just looking at these 1850s guys. I wasn't worried about you. I mean, but it really did make me reach out to my father who, you know, my brother and father both served in the military, a number of our different relatives. I'm sure my co-host's relatives have served as well. And I asked my dad who served in Vietnam, you know, what would I tell, you know, this other Yakima tribal member that's asking? And um, he actually wrote something out for me that I published, but the, the first answer he gave me was, you know, the military, I didn't join the military. The military joined me in protecting these lands since time immemorial, because it's our people that have fought. And so, you know, when I shared that with you, I, it, you know, and fast forward, I wasn't sure how you're going to take it. I thought, I don't know if he's going <laughs> to tell me something else, but um, it's a process of our people, you know, to bring up these stories. Sometimes there's a lot of vulnerability there because there's so much and people don't want to hear our side of the story. They don't want to hear our side of the war. They don't want to hear about violence towards Native women back then. Um, and it's also a testament to strength, which speaks to your title we fear not we haven't heard from lucy so i just want to get your take on that what do you think um of the we fear not page and movement let's get you in on this conversation a bit here lucy thank you emily i'm actually just enjoying the conversation in general and what's being shared i can really appreciate that we have a, a yakima man who's coming forward and talking about their personal experiences and really sharing your vulnerability and um, like Patsy had said, you know, a lot of these um, situations are not isolated here. You know, we do have a lot of youth that are in the foster system. 
we do have um, a lot of people that are trying to get through their sobriety, whatever that looks like. I had an uncle who died of alcoholism a few years ago, and I can remember every per capita weekend, you know, I'd expect him to be at Safeway. And sometimes I still think, you know, oh, my uncle's going to be at Safeway. But, you know, like, that's just kind of like a, a thing. And um, like Patsy had said so well, you know, that that's a part of who we are. And it's something that we'll always remember, you know, to, to be where we're at. Uh, but I did want to ask about We Fair Not and what you actually saw for the future of We Fair Not and how to, how the community has been receiving it and basically what that will look like, you know, a couple of years from now. The, for the future, I'm hoping that, um, like I said, the, the main thing that um, getting people to speak out, that is, that, is part, that is part of the goal. I do realize that when it comes to, I guess you can say, healing, even just as a, even within ourselves, that we have to own up to, to something, right? We have to own up to something to heal ourselves. Um, in order to feel completely comfortable with who we are, we have to own and so when we look at the community, we can look at the community the same, same exact way. In order for us to start healing, we have to own. We have to own who we are. We started talking initially about alcoholism and drugs. So we start owning who we are. When I was growing up as a child, you know, people would tell me, hey, look, there's your mother, the alcoholic. Hey, there's your mother, the drunk. You know, they would say, you know, do this, these things to belittle who my mother was and also at the same time belittle who I was unbeknownst to them, you know, the belittlements to me, you know, caused much more damage than what it did when it caused the image of, you know, how I looked at my mother. And so when we say things, you know, like to, to our, our loved ones, our little ones growing up, you know, and we see all our, our issues on the streets, you know, the drugs, the alcoholics, because not everyone's a druggie. There are people that are just on there just to be on drug, uh, alcohol. There are people that are out there just because they simply do want do not want to be avoid do not want to be bothered by their loved ones saying hey just stop drinking so much you know those are the type of people that are out there and so when we stand in our own way you know when with we fear not you know taking a hard look at ourselves at our own community saying and owning up to ourselves that's the real goal and that's the real challenge um, I don't think we can really necessarily move forward anything past that or anything extremely further positively unless we actually own up to what it is that how we do, you know, and sort of say shoot ourselves in the foot. Um, so we fear not, you know, trying to get us to stand out of our own way, get us to own up to who we are, getting us to own up to ourselves as a community, getting us to speak up to crimes that are being you know, influenced or otherwise driven by the loved ones that we're scared to, you know, talk about. So when, before, you know, another one of the questions that you would ask was, was about, you know, my recovery. When it comes to owning, you know, we talk about, when it comes to recovery, we talk about owning who we are. When I was in the military, you know, I lived one entire lifetime. I was talking to my teenage boy the other time. I lived one entire lifetime in the military. Prior to that, I lived one entire lifetime here on the reservation. So I lived two entire lifetimes. My entire lifetime on the reservation, you know, I was, had the whole alcohol influence, had the whole, there was domestic violence that I was able to be witness to, homeless, homelessness that I was able to be part of as a four-year-old child, sexual molestation that I was able, that, that was done to me. So I had an entire lifetime of trauma that was caused within my own community, my neighborhood, my loved ones, my family. And then you think about military. I joined the military. I have an entire lifetime of trauma with the military. You know, I went, I've, I've been on seven combat tours, seven combat tours where I was able to see get into firefights, bullets uh, flash, flying past my head, RPGs, mortars blowing up around me, uh, bodies, parts of Taliban, burned little kids. I've been, been a witness to burned little kids that have to deal with the combat over there. Elders telling us that what we are doing is wrong. 
and having the mindset of saying, dang, my elders used to tell our government the same thing. What we are doing is wrong. And so I had all these things that, you know, things that for my military experience, my military trauma that just said, you know what? No. And so when I left the military, I'm not ashamed of, you know, what it is that I had to go through. When I left the military, my family left me. You know, I put myself in such a hard situation where I, alcohol, sex, any, the pills the army gave me, pain pills. You know, I had these things that, you know, decided to stand in my way and say, you know what? You don't deserve your family. You know, that that's not the case though. I had to pull myself out of who I was. You know, I've experienced the trauma of everything that I said before my first 17, 18 years of life. And then the trauma of all of the 17 years of life that I had to experience in the military. Bring them both together and identify what it is I had to experience. Not having a mom, having all the stuff go on around me. And not only just having it be part of my life, but actually being able to witness and see it being a part of everyone else's life around me too. And we've grown so comfortable with that. And that's the part that we fear not. I want to be able to rise out of, you know, we deserve better. We as Yakima people, we as indigenous people, we deserve so much better. But we decide to, you know, take the, the short road and say, hey, look, there's your strong person or drug person. That's who, and then the children, you know, it's unfortunate to say, but I began when I was told to embrace that. Oh, well, that is, I guess, my mom drunk, you know. And so when I talk about, you know, recovering who I was, you know, I realized I identified all of these traumas that I went through. I identified each and every single one of them individually with my elders that I trusted. And yeah, we, we, I took in the washout way. I took in the, the huyach ways, the, the sweat house, the longhouse ways, went to the mountains, went to the river. I fasted, you know, in order to get rid of, you know, that, that, that heavy feeling that you know I had to carry through two separate lifetimes of both civilian life and military life, you know, and turn that into a uh, a beneficial thing. You know, I know what I went through now, and I, and I can now make myself stronger because of it. I know that I suffered in all of these ways, and you know, I know what I'm capable of now. I know that I'm able to help others. Um, influence others in that same direction, same fashion. And that's the hope of We Fear Not, you know, um, being able to say, I understand where you've been. I get it. I know how it feels to be, um, you know, at the bottom. I know how it feels to be at the bottom where everyone's telling, you know, that's, look at your drunk, you know, or, you know, being down there and having nobody around. Everybody knows what the bottom of the barrel feels like. And if you don't know what the bottom of the barrel feels like, well, I'm very, very, very happy for you. And I pray that you never do experience what the bottom of the barrel feels like. But for those of us that do or have known what the bottom of the barrel feels like, and to know that it is very hard to pull ourselves out, you either have to be, you know, first really strong or you have to be, have second, a very strong support system. One of those two things are the only thing that will be able to help get us out of that, that rut. So we have those that are really strong, those that are able to stand up on their own. Those are the part, those are the initial ones that I want to try to reach out initially with, we fear not. Those that are already capable of standing up on themselves and saying, let's do this. With that, the second thing, the second goal that I want to be able to establish after that, after we establish that first one, start reaching out to the others that, you know, they want to be pulled out of that ruck. Because those that aren't strong enough to stand up on their own, we as the community, we speak so highly about how we as a community stand up to support each other. 
well, we now can show that we are capable of doing that. And so with We Fear not moving forward with, you know, you know, I explained a little bit about my recovery system. This is how all of it kind of just ties in together. I don't know if you want to you know, have any more questions about that, but that's kind of how, that's the route that you know, I wanted to take with it. Because um, it is hard to be able to stand up against your loved one and say, you know what, you did that. <laughs> and it's a scary thing too. It is very scary to be able to stand up to your loved one and say, you know what, I'm tired of this. No more. Or, you know, however else you want to try to motivate your loved one. It's scary. And so with We Fear Not, that's, we can stand up together and, you know, we can all do it together. Yeah, I mean, uh, George, uh, Patithla, I definitely think this is a part of many conversations we'll have. I don't think this is the last time we'll ask you to be a guest on our podcast. Um, we definitely would be interested in hearing more um, as, as it progresses especially if there's any new information about your mother's case or uh, anybody that takes another look at it. Again, as a Native woman, not knowing who the Yakima women are that have been hurt, the families that have been hurt, is devastating. Mm -hmm. um, to think that you've been alone in this process, your sisters have been alone. I mean, we just really want to send out a war cry to the children of Sandra Lee Smiskin, uh, the family of uh, the Smiskin family. Uh, to have that strength and to know that there's vulnerability that comes with that strength, which is something that I think you're definitely bringing forward with We Fear Not. We also want to give a war cry to somebody that you mentioned earlier, the warrior in your family, Topanish, uh, who fought in battles of the Yakima War uh, from 1855 to 1858. And I want to give a war cry out to the people that were there for you that reminded you of your mother, um, you know, you got choked up. I was choked up. I think we were all teary eyed at that moment. Those three nurses named Sandra that helped and were there by your side. Um, we want to send a war cry out to them. Thank you. We'd like to dedicate this episode to Sandra Lee Smiskin as her family continues to wait for justice in her unsolved case that happened in Seattle, Washington. Please follow War Cry Podcast. We also post updates on our social media uh, and we wish you, uh, I don't even know how to end this. This feels like we talked about so much. You can also follow We Fear Not on their Facebook page, which George Lee runs. Have a good day, Chef Patchway. This episode is produced and edited by Robin Pibishi. We have logo by John Only Schellenberger with Native Anthro. Our War Cry t-shirts are by Nicole Pibishi and music by Lee Sikakwapiwap.